0: Hey everybody, this is Ben Bowman and Alex Titus. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge.
1: There's nobody truly better in a job like that than in somebody who was a judge for 20 years and then steps into a role like that. It was a pinnacle moment for just changing how we communicate. And at the time, it wasn't even seen as like, reaching out to younger people. It was just like, oh, there's this shift happening. Just thinking about it like through that lens of like, how can I reach people really, really quickly with a quick statement? You will be in a crisis. I mean, there is no doubt about it. These reporters that are left are really the last men and women standing, and we have to support them and figure out a way to make their lives easier.
0: All right, folks, today we are very, very excited because we interviewed Christina Edmondson. If you are a reader of our weekly newsletter, you are familiar with Christina at this point. But if you're a political observer more generally, you've almost certainly read a statement from Christina in some reporting. She's helping us with the liftoff. She just wrapped up her time working for Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum. She was with her for nine years, a very long time in political communications to be with one principal. And so now she's transitioning into another phase. And part of that includes working with Oregon 360 Media on our newsletter. And we also talk a little bit in this episode about a very prominent, large project that you definitely read about that she was involved in. So stay tuned for that. But in terms of her professional background, she's worked at the national level. She's worked at the state level. She was deputy communications director for the Peace Corps in the Obama administration, which is very cool. She worked on Vice President Biden's advance team. Previously, she worked for Oregon Governor Ted Kulangoski. She worked for the 2008 Democratic National Convention in Denver, which we talk about in this episode. So she's highly qualified, got a lot of experience. Alex and I have talked about this privately. We are very fortunate to have her working with us on this project. And I thought the conversation was super interesting. And I think all political nerds will enjoy it. Alex, anything you want to offer about the conversation?
2: Yeah. Great episode. Talk about really anything you could want to know. I also think she actually gives a pretty good perspective. If you're like a college student working in state politics or want to start working in state politics and transition that to national, clearly she did a very good job at that. Also, she actually served in the Peace Corps, which we didn't get to talk about was uh, that was one of the topics that was missed, but also talk about AI newsrooms. You'll definitely want to hear about that. The future of journalism may be very dark if the robots take over. So <laughs> we have a good little exchange on that, but we yeah, a good episode overall.
0: All right. Thanks everyone for listening and enjoy this interview with Christina Edmondson.
1: Oregon law imposes several ethical obligations on state and local public officials. State law also regulates and requires reporting by lobbyists. Haranglong PC's lawyers work with public officials and lobbyists who need advice on how to comply with government ethics rules. We also represent clients before the Oregon Government Ethics Commission when they are accused of violating those rules. Our deep experience with government ethics helps us evaluate issues efficiently and offer practical advice in what can often be contentious and politically charged circumstances. To learn more about harang government ethics practice, go to harang.com. That's H-A-R-R-A-N-G.com.
0: All right, Christina Edmondson, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi guys, it's great to see you.
0: It is great to see you as well. So we're going to talk a little bit about your career trajectory what you're up to these days. But before we do that, can you give for the listeners a little bit of an overview of how you ended up here and how you got engaged with Oregon 360 Media and the liftoff?
1: Yeah. Well, first off, thank you for having me. It's fun to chat with you guys and learn a little bit more about your work and then also my work. So earlier this year in January, I realized. Oh my gosh, how is Ben doing the lift off every (laughs) single week? And obviously I knew Alex was involved and I didn't know really either of you very well, but thought I don't know how he's doing this with session and a, a big session and a long session at that. So I think that really was the impetus for me to reach out and just say like, Hey, I have been working in state government for the last eight and a half years at that point. I've been the spokesperson. had been the spokesperson for the attorney general during that whole period. I felt a little bit like a caged bird while I was the spokeswoman for the DOJ. You're very, you know, just have to be really structured and strict and um, regimented and what you can kind of post and talk about. And there's a lot of privilege that comes with that, both legal privilege, but then just also privilege of having that information and being a spokeswoman like that. So that was really my impetus. It was like a random Thursday that I think I emailed you, Ben. And I just said like, Hey, I don't know how you're doing this, but can I help? And I really appreciate that you jumped right on. And it's been uh, really fun for me to work on on the liftoff each week.
0: That's awesome. I was probably over eager in my response like oh my gosh yes please thank you so much Help yeah me. yeah <laughs> but yeah. it but it I do really think it worked out hopefully it's working out well for you we'll talk a little bit about kind of what the next chapter of your professional life will look like but you know Alex and I have had some people reach out and people who want to be part of it but the skill set of what I think you need to be able to do the lift off which I think is like You have to have some like journalism know-how, like how the news industry works, but you also have to have a ton of political savvy and understand what like elected officials and lobbyists and political party leaders and special interests, what they care about and like what dynamics they're paying attention to. So you obviously will talk about your background, have all of those things. And so we are extremely grateful for you for stepping in to help do the newsletter each week and looking forward to hearing more on the podcast about what professional experiences you've had that led you to this moment. So. Alex, do you want to kick off with uh, your first question?
2: Yeah, no, I'm really curious to hear specifically, I guess, just kind of to start about your time at the 2008 DNC in particular, I'm not and I'm I'm not sure exactly when you had joined that. But I did know it was I'm not mistaken. I mean, I think people knew Obama was had it like Mm -hmm. at the end. But I mean, it was obviously pretty contested up until Mm -hmm. the actual probably some, you know, actually contested. I know I don't understand the full rules, but like super delegates get extra votes, that sort of thing, which I don't even know if that still exists. But talk about that experience, what that was like. That must have been a really exciting time, especially in Democratic politics, I imagine. Coming at the end of the not so fun Bush era, Iraq housing market collapse, banking collapse, uh, Gosh, yeah. basically yeah. everything is bad as yeah. it could possibly no, you, be during that time. So <laughs> yeah, tell us a little right, bit about that. Right. i was and, super intrigued by seeing that you had worked at the convention.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. No, that's a great question. And I love talking about it. I feel like I'm going back into my vault even thinking about that. But I had just graduated from the EOBO not too long before that. And I was president of the College Dems at the U of O. And I remember oh. us, you know, like doing all the things for Bush and, you know, passing out the lapel pens that say like it's a Supreme Court stupid and it's funny that you know <laughs> many years later now people kind of really are waking up to the significance of the Supreme Court but at the time it was like people just kind of went over their heads a little bit but yeah I was you know days after college graduation in Eugene jumped on as the press assistant for then governor Ted Kulongoski, and that was like just the most fun job ever I mean oh, really? you send a 21 year old 22 year old to work in a governor's office and there's just no place like it I mean it, it's truly There's no energy like that. There's no cadence like that. You were, you know, one minute in Pendleton, next minute in Medford. You were, you know, I remember being in a Chinook helicopter during the peak of fire season, touring fire damage with the governor at that point, and just thinking, like, pinch me. Like, this is just the most, you know, important thing I could be doing right now in terms of working for the state I love. I was born and raised in Eugene. I didn't have a lot of experience in the Portland metro area or anything like that. So I really give credit to a mentor of mine who I met in the governor's office, Mary Ellen Glenn, if you're listening, shout out to her. She was the one who kind of whispered in my ear, like, you should just go do a national campaign. And I thought, well, that's interesting, but how do you do that? Mm -hmm. And, you know, next thing I knew, Portland for the primary for a couple months working here on the press side of operations, and then went out to Denver for the Democratic Convention. I was out in Denver for six or seven months working on the press team. It was really my first experience in national politics. That was my first experience working with people from really all over the country. But Alex, to your point about the inner workings of the convention, it's that I've been to four or five national conventions in my life. Oh, wow. That will oh, always wow. be the most formidable. There is absolutely nothing more patriotic. The night he he accepted his nomination, um, waving American flags, it was incredible. And to be honest, for security reasons, I don't know we'll ever see an open air convention again in our lifetimes. I'm pretty sure the Secret Service has absolutely shut that down ever since. But I had friends who booked last minute flights from Portland and elsewhere on the West coast just to come and sleep on floors just to be there in standing room only. And it's just an incredible, I think, American moment to think of that.
0: Were you team Obama from the very beginning or did you kind of arrive in the Obama camp once things had, had sorted themselves out?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't know that I was hardcore team Obama, super respected him, had seen him at the Boston convention in 2004. Mm-hmm. So, again, I would have been in college at that period. But I remember that speech thinking, wow, he's really interesting. But no more than that. And obviously, Hillary Clinton was somebody I had known. I think I was just trying to keep my eyes open and see kind of where this shook out. But the more I got to know about Obama, the more I worked, like I said, in the leading moments of the convention or leading moments of the Oregon primary, it was just, really cool and just really enjoyed it. I, from the convention that Denver, I took a flight right to Pennsylvania. I was out in Pittsburgh for two and a half months then working on the campaign for him. And that was also just such a pivotal moment in my life at the time, you know, talk about supporter housing and sleeping on couches and, you know, eating all the bad food and driving and meeting every surrogate. And then also just like a great love for that community. There was actually a lot of similarities of growing up in Eugene, just kind of small town vibes. Lots of people, many generations live there. We did a lot of events at Elks halls and you know veteran halls. And it just was, I, I I loved the vibe and was also just an incredible experience to be a part of that. And some of my best friends to this day, I met out on either the convention or uh, in Pittsburgh working for the Obama campaign.
0: So zooming back even further, your I think it was your dad who mm-hmm. is like a had some prominent roles in Oregon. Was he a legislator at one point?
1: Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my dad
0: chair of the state party too, I think Mm -hmm. I'm kind of curious, like what growing up in a political family was like for you as a kid.
1: Yeah. You know, I think we had that right balance again, living in Eugene. My mom was a school teacher, but yes, my dad served in the legislature. So I would have been like mainly elementary school when he served in the legislature. Um, yeah, so I uh, recently found a postcard that I wrote at Camp Cleowoc, shout out to the Girl Scouts in Florence, Oregon, still a camp to this day that I hope my daughter will be able to go to someday. But I wrote a postcard and I wrote it to my parents and I said, did you sign any die yet? And I'm thinking like, how many <laughs> fourth graders were writing that? So yes, I would say that uh, the capital back in the day was very different. But I have lots and lots of memories of running down the halls with a gaggle of kids who were also legislator, you know, or grandchildren of legislators, lots of well-known names that you all know kind of just didn't, you know, the legacy of that life. So mad respect for all the legislators out there. I know how hard it is on families.
0: I was going to say, do you, who are some of the names that you remember from that time or who had an impact on you that you had interactions with? Like, does any, I'm trying to, I'm trying to place who those folks were.
1: That's a good question. So there's a couple lobbyists now who are children of legislators who we've kind of run into and done the double take like, oh, was that you? Yeah, yeah, I think that was you. Okay, okay. In college, I met a girl with the last name Witty, and her grandfather was a famous legislator from, and I don't know if House or Senate, from the Portland area. And I'm like, are you really? And it's like, oh my gosh, you know, that was, you know, such a long time ago. So, yeah, it's funny how that world kind of comes. Also just know the stress it was, you know? My mom had to hold things down.
0: Totally. So we'll zoom forward a little bit and then I think Alex is going to take us to journalism. But so you your most recent job was working for Oregon Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum and I think you were in that job for you said 8 years or something. Like that. it's a long time in political communications to stay with a principal. So what was what, what led you to Attorney General Rosenblum's office when you started?
1: Yeah, I was BC for many for a few years and then went to Denver and did a graduate degree and really knew I wanted to be back in Portland so I started kind of thinking, you know, kind of dipping my toes back in that world and kind of seeing who was out there looking for a communications director. Ellen at the time was maybe two years into her first term. And so she had had one communications director prior, maybe a name you are familiar with, Jeff Manning at the Oregonian was her first oh, yeah. communications director. And Jeff is such a great guy. And I think it was just hard for him to, you know, take off that investigative journalist hat and then all of a sudden be, uh, you know, we're not in a position to comment type of a person. And so right. I just love him. And so we, you know, after I started the position, I got to know him a little bit more. But at the time, you know, I really give Ellen credit for taking You know, there it had been a long history of men who had held a job like that, men in their 40s and their 50s and their 60s who had held a job like that, who had stayed for a long time. And I give Ellen credit for really looking at me and you know, vibing with my energy, vibing with my ideas. You know, she wasn't doing social media at the time, you know, Jay just hadn't historically done anything like that. So I really just loved her energy from the get go. And I'm still extremely close with the attorney general. There's nobody truly better in a job like that than in somebody who was a judge for 20 years and then steps into a role like that. She is so judicious and thoughtful. And I don't think you could ask for a better quality in an attorney general. So I just had a great ride there. And yeah, Ben, that's a good question about why I stayed so long. I mean, I think I, at the time thought, well, this will just be a couple years. And It just kept bringing me back the work that that the DOJ does. You truly have your tentacles in all aspects of state government. You have your tentacles in all aspects of the news. And I just think they're such a privilege to that.
2: Yeah. So one thing I think, which is really interesting about your career, specifically in comms, having started in like specifically started in 08, and then Mm -hmm. kind of be where we are today, right? Is that, well, not when you were first getting started, I would say a few years before that was kind of like the blogosphere, right? There was like popular Mm -hmm. blogs on the right, popular blogs on the left. Of course, a lot of those people came to be, you know, prominent journalists at places like the Washington Post or CNN or whatever it might be. But, right, we sort of go from the online bloggers to now we have like the TikTokers, right? So it's like a dramatic change that you've seen just in the terms, both of how I would say, not even just news is produced, but also how news is consumed, right? I mean, like the Washington Post, for example, now has their own TikTok guy, which I find Mm -hmm. to be like, if you take a look at the content that he produces versus the actual like stories that people are writing, it's just like, to me, it's just totally unserious, but Mm -hmm. I understand why they're doing that. They're probably trying to like connect with younger audiences and, you know, open new markets. And of course, everybody's on TikTok now or, you know, I know TikTok is even actually kind of old. There's like another. Uh, lemonade. Yeah, there's like Lemonade or something <laughs> right. also produced by the same company that owns TikTok. But obviously, you know, that's kind of changing fast. But I'm just curious of, right, like you've seen a lot of these and we'll talk a little bit more kind of about local journalism, national journalism, too, but specifically just in terms of how news is produced and then also consumed. How have you seen that change firsthand with your job, right? Because as a communications professional, you're dealing with journalists, probably blog creators, content producers, and things like that. What does that, like, I would say pretty quickly evolution kind of look like from your perspective in like a practical sense?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. I remember in the 2008 convention, there was a very... Long conversation about the definition of a blogger and who gets credentials to cover that. And at the time was talking about Twitter and, and you know really advocating for bloggers and things like that. And it was a pinnacle moment for just changing how we communicate. And at the time it wasn't even seen as like reaching out to younger people. It was just like, oh, there's this shift happening. And how do we ride that? And how do we vet these people? And how do we make sure they're legitimate or not? So no, I think that's right. And saying, well, I don't you know everybody this person was saying, everybody's off Twitter now, you know, with Elon being in charge, like there's no value to Twitter. And I'm like, look, I got news for you. Like if you are a one person comms shop for the state attorney general working on national issues and you need to get something out quickly, getting an eight paragraph press release vetted through a bunch of lawyers is going to kill your day. Getting 140 (laughs) characters out really quickly on Twitter is the easiest and best way I can do this. And sure enough, you know, we're a small community in Oregon. The the media is, you know, elected officials, like, you know, that's where journalists and things like that are still on that platform. And, you know, I guess we'll see where the future takes us, but there is value in, you know, just thinking about it, like through that lens of like, how can I reach people really, really quickly? with a quick statement, you know, like just a month ago when medication abortion was on the line and it's like, how do we get the word out really quickly when there's been a decision on the medication abortion stuff? Like that's an example of just, you know, being able to use Twitter as a way to reach people. So yeah, it's an interesting, we'll kind of see how, where things go. I mean, the flip side of that is to do social office well, you really have to have a team. I mean, you have to have content creators. You have to have somebody who, is able to really spend the time with that and that is hard when you're just one communications person.
0: I have a question that's I think related to this. I we've talked a lot about journalism in Oregon and the decline of like the number of journalists reporting on state politics and like your 10 years actually seen that, right? You've got fewer and fewer mm-hmm. full-time career journalists who are like reporting on state politics. And so one Potential takeaway from that is like the power of the press is declining. And I think in some ways that's true. And there's strong evidence of that and consequences of that. But something topical that's happening right now, I'm not sure when, I think we're probably a week or so away from posting this episode. But Secretary of State Shamia Fagan is under pretty intense scrutiny right now because of political reporting done by Willamette Week and then subsequent reporting done by The Oregonian and a couple others. And so I guess I'm curious how do you as a political communications professional evaluate the power of the Oregon political press right now like just when you th- I thought it was like kind of waning it proves that there's still a lot of strength and ability to I mean nothing has happened yet to be clear right like as of this recording yeah. investigations are undergoing but like the reporting I would say at least led to backlash among Democratic Party leaders, like a lot of people who received money from the private company that the secretary was or is working for has like returned the dollars. They put out statements. The governor's been very critical. So there's the press is clearly impacting how political actors are behaving. But I'm kind of curious how you reflect on this like question of the strength of Oregon's political press.
1: Yeah, no, I have mad respect for every single journalist, especially those who are still slogging it out and covering Salem in any capacity. I mean, it's just, I know how overburdened they are and how overworked they are. And at the same time, I think you're right. That shows the value of even a, quote unquote, small, you know, outlet, like Willamette week, really being able, I mean, I loved your conversation with Nigel for that reason. I think Les has done really amazing things for our state. The work of the Capitol Chronicle is some of the best right now. Mm -hmm. And they are able to do that because someone like Les made that happen. But with that said, I think you're even seeing like Andrew Thien with the Oregonian is now over at OPB and he's producing their podcast. And you're seeing, you know, kind of, some of those newer ways of reaching more people. A friend of mine, not in political circles at all, was like, oh yeah, I listened to the OPB podcast. And I'm thinking like, you listen to the OPB podcast? (laughs) I mean, that's so cool. So, but, you know, podcasts are a way that she loves to stay connected to the local community. And so I think there's, you know, really innovative ways that people are trying to get around this. I think the work of Oregon 360 actually speaks to meeting that needs, right, of, you know, especially the work of the liftoff every Monday morning. It's like, here's all the things you missed last week that you maybe didn't even know that you missed, and people don't have time. I mean, I think if I could advise newsrooms on one thing, it would be why is nobody doing just like 99 cents to read an article? You know, I think people get so overwhelmed by like, I need a subscription to this. I need a subscription to that. I need, you know, I pay for 10 subscriptions to, you know, watch the TV shows I want. And then you're asking me to pay a subscription to Oregon live. And maybe I want to read this one story in the Statesman journal. I mean, why I haven't understood why we haven't figured out that model of payment yet, but I digress a little bit, but you know, I think you will be in a crisis. I mean, there is no doubt about it. These reporters that are left are really the last men and women standing and we have to support them and figure out a way to make their lives easier. And I always saw that as my role at the AG's office. AG Rosenblum was a huge supporter and continues to be a huge supporter of public records. And I really valued her hindsight on that and her thoughts. And she asked a lot of state agencies and ordered them to release records that they maybe didn't always want to release. And it was, you know, always with a lot of careful thought, but at the end of the day, whatever we can do to make their lives easier, I thought was money well spent.
0: I've got one like follow-up to that question and then I'll hand to Alex. So the inverse question and one I've been thinking about recently is I'm curious like how you would describe your philosophy as a political communications Mm -hmm. person. And the reason I ask that is because I think bad political comms people are really bad. (laughs) Like, People who are so focused on talking points that they like blatantly won't answer a question. They won't engage in nuance. Like everything is so, there's this obsession with being constantly on message that I think it like reinforces the sense that like politicians can't be trusted and like blah, 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 blah. Like, and I think, and I frankly think that's more common now than it was 10 years ago, probably. Like this obsession with like staying on message, keeping on your talking points. Someone asks you a question, you sort of, revert back to what you originally, like what's the, the, in the trainings they say, like, don't answer the question you're asked, answer the question that you wish you were asked Right. or whatever. Like that seems to be like the prevailing conventionalism in politics right now. And I think it, I guess I'm, I doubt Mm -hmm. that I think that's poorly received by journalists, people who don't engage in good faith with like the questions they're trying to ask. So I'm kind of curious how you approach that dynamic. You want reporters to be writing about what you want reporters to be writing about, but you also have to concede like their own interests and the interests of their readers and try to be responsive to what they're asking. So talk to us about how you would navigate that dynamic.
1: Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And one I think that I was, and still am, when I work with a reporter in any capacity, trying to, you know, trying to really craft and hone in. And, And I didn't always do it right. I don't always do it right. But at the end of the day, especially in a place like Oregon, I think compassion and honesty always will win the day. And it's like, sometimes you just have to say, I am so sorry, I'm not going to be able to answer or get the information that you want. You are welcome to check back in with me. I will be as open as I can. Or the flip side of that is also being able to say, instead of just papering us with public records, could we talk about maybe what I think you want in a way that I could fight for, you know, uh, let you get, and then also just kind of, especially with the the press corps in Oregon, you know, I think I just tried to develop relationships with them. I would try to be really responsive, you know, really quick when I could. And the easy wins and the things that did not take me a lot of time that I could do quickly for folks, I think always goodwill. You know, if that was like, I'm going to really respond to your email within like 15 minutes, because I just know the answer to this, or I'm going to make the phone call to get the document that you want or send you down, you know, this way or that way. And I always loved it too, when reporters would call me and just say like, okay, we're anticipating a decision on X, Y, and Z, maybe a state decision, a federal decision, judicial, whatever. And I'm just wondering what you guys are thinking you'll put out. And it would be like, hey, can we just talk on like background right now? Okay, here's what I think we're gonna do. We're either gonna get a press release out in an hour or in the case of the attorney general, she's gonna wanna read the decision. She's gonna wanna read the brief. She's gonna wanna read the filing. I doubt we'll get a press release out really quickly, but you know, Again, like look on Twitter, see if we can, you know, maybe get you something quickly. Just that honesty, I felt like went a long, long way. And I think there was a lot of respect for our office that I just really tried to, that was not just me. It was the work of the team. And I really tried to to do that. I think people also really respected to your point, Ben, that it was just one person, you know, we didn't have someone specifically doing social media. We didn't have a speech writer. We didn't have somebody taking photos at events. Like it was just me. And I think people really respected that
0: too.
2: Hmm, that makes sense. Alex? Yeah. And actually, well, Ben kind of stole my question a little bit, but in a different way. But I did want to also ask about, and I was a comms guy for quite a while too. It's just kind of the, I can't really think of a better word for it, but I do think this is right. But just the dumbing down of communication in general, especially in politics. Like, I don't really think this is happening in business, but especially in politics, like things just seem a little bit out of control. Right. Like, I feel like, you know, probably when you were doing the DNC, let's say, you know, most of your press releases are probably very professional, probably very proper and things like that. But if if you go and look at some of the actual like official government Twitters of like committees that are, you know, now controlled by Republicans used to be controlled by Democrats, some of the messages they're putting out on (laughs) say like Official government accounts are, I think, quite wild, might even be a little bit of an under exaggeration, right? Whether it's like, you know, this side's a bunch of fascists or like this is a bunch of radical leftists. And I'm like, oh, this is a like government Twitter account kind of tweeting this stuff. And I feel like both sides of the aisle, this is just, it's kind of like standard practice now, right? To like, you know, Ben introduces a bill that I really don't like. And I say, you know, Ben's HB number one is going to, you know, end America, basically, right? Which, if you think about it, is, it's like really dumbed down communications in a way there's no nuance and i feel like it in a way has kind of like i guess turned people off to things that like what you actually want to think are serious are serious right like if i'm saying that everything's the end of the world every bill ben introduces is going to end the country it's kind of it's kind of like the cry wolf <laughs> scenario in I some am. ways right of like but I'm actually trying to enhance or I actually think something is bad for the country, right? It just kind of gets lost in the noise. Have you seen, like, I'm curious, if you agree with that or disagree, like, do you think that the language has just kind of gotten like dumbed down, over-exaggerated over time? I think it's largely due to social media too. I don't think it's (laughs) like the actual, I don't think our comms professionals have gotten more dumb. I think they're just like following incentive structure basically, which is like, get a lot of clicks on Twitter, get a lot of traction. If you're doing political campaigns, of course, that can lead to more small dollars. But curious of your take on the premise, if that's what you've seen, agree, disagree.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that definitely happens really at the national level a lot. Um, At the state level, yeah, I mean, you're right. It's like kind of coming. I mean, Twitter is basically a headline, right? So it's like writing the catchiest headline you can that is going to make people, you know, click on your thing or retweet you or, you know, kind of join that outrage with you. I don't know that I felt that as much in my position. But again, that was because, you know, we had to kind of get serious things out, out the door. And, you know, we weren't always in a political campaign type environment. We were working through the courts on legal filings and things like that. So I don't know that I felt it as much all of the time, but I think there has certainly been a shift to that really quick soundbite. You know, as I mentioned earlier in the conversation, you know, kind of shifting, like not doing as many press releases and doing a quick tweet or, you know, maybe doing a quick interview and then moving on from the topic. The downside of that is you don't have that great history that you can go back and pull on, right? Like if you go to the website of the attorney general, you're not going to have maybe that, that you know, place that houses all of those statements and things like that, that maybe just went on. Now, of course, there's Twitter itself, but who's going to wade through that? So, you know, I think there is a something that, a lost art in just the quick soundbite of not really giving the context. But with that said, I mean, you know, I always saw our jobs too, is to, you know, they say that the average person who's, you know, kind of consuming this just in general, you know, kind of sticking at that fourth grade reading level. And I always thought like, man, this is really hard when you're talking about complicated things and complicated legal cases. And and I always would tell the team at DOJ, mainly lawyers that I worked with, like if I don't understand this, nobody's gonna understand this, right? And so that's how we can communicate with people is, you know, speaking on their language and really, you know, making things as easy to digest as possible.
2: Gotcha. Yeah. And then another thing I wanted to ask about, just because I've been seeing this quite Mm -hmm. a bit in the communication space, and I actually use it on a day-to-day basis, is chat GPT, right? So there's, you know, I would think there's kind of like an information overload right now, a little bit in some ways, especially when it comes to comms of like journalists are getting tons and tons and tons of pitches every day. Well, probably more on the national level, but I'm assuming on the state level too, obviously there's a lot of PR agencies and things like that. And people are being you know, asked to write a lot of press releases and things like that. I don't know if you've used chat GPT yet, but it's actually pretty incredible when you say like, hey, I want to write a press release, or I want to write an op ed about this or about that. I would say the technology is definitely not perfect in the sense of like, you ask it to write an op ed arguing for legalization of marijuana or something like that. Like it's like, oh, there's some you know, decent, like the argument can flow basically, but like, maybe it's a little bit boilerplate or it's a little bit more plan, but obviously this sort of technology, I think will, you know, get a lot better in terms of that, the robots may be doing a lot more of the writing, let's say even like the next two, three, four, five years, kind of than actual people are now, which will honestly just create even more of an influx of information than people have available now, because, mm-hmm. you know, now this will be able to be produced it takes you you know, 35, 40 minutes to write a press release. The computer could write 45 press releases within 45 minutes or something like that. I'm just curious of like, is, is that a tool you played around with at all? Or uh, have you kind of thought about that in terms of like how some of this AI writing and things might shape political communications, journalists, you know, articles and things like that in the future. Like I imagine pretty soon there will probably be a publication that comes out that has like a totally AI staff in terms of reporters. Obviously oh they will not, I think be, like breaking news, right, in terms of like picking up scoops. But I mean, like, like for example, right, like foxnews.com, I mean, they break some stories, but like a lot of it is just kind of like regurgitated news from other outlets and things like that. But I imagine that a lot of that can probably just be done by AI at some point and maybe have like a couple of editorial staff or kind of overseeing to make sure that, you know, not like a lot of, you know, random things are getting in there or whatnot. But have you played around with the tool at all? Or I'm kind of curious of what you think that the AI future for communications might look like?
1: Yeah, I have played around with it a little bit. I haven't thought much about like the long-term, you know, part of me says like, bring it on. I mean, like if you can give me a tool that I can write an op-ed that somebody else can write, some, not even a person, the computer can write an op-ed and I could then kind of have final editing rights to, you know, make it a little more like, that sounds great. I've been actually chatting with my sister a lot about this, who's a professor at Oregon State University and it scares the crap out of her. I mean, she has to rethink how she teaches classes. She has to rethink how she does seminars. She does a lot of small group work and it's like, you know, how do you get around that in the academic setting? So I've actually been more thinking about it through that lens, but I think this has the potential to change. I don't know. Time will tell, but that's a really interesting line of thought that you're bringing up.
2: Hopefully it won't be too dark of a line of thought, but uh, I guess, guess we'll find <laughs> out soon. So I'm <laughs> yeah, just waiting yeah, for the all AI publication. Like I'm yeah. almost certain it's going to happen. And I was actually even thinking too, right? like, you know, they could probably like program AI or something to like write like slightly biased stories against certain people. Right. So like, let's say it's like pulling a story of Ben's, like a new bill he introduced or something. And it's like a program to be like slightly biased towards conservatives. So maybe says it's like, you know, I don't know, like socialism or something, but, you know, maybe like, oh, it's a far out there proposal, like not a lot of popular support. You know, it's kind of like reporting the news, but it's like purposely slanted bias. I'm just I'm like waiting for someone to come out with this. I'm kind of surprised we haven't really heard about the all AI newsroom just yet. But sounds uh, very
0: dystopian. Although I'm thinking, yeah, very, it's
2: truly really very dystopian. Yeah.
0: For the next issue of the list off, you should put into Chat GPT, write a summary of all Oregon politics news in the last week, and see if it can see if it can save Christine and I some time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. I love it.
0: We'll
2: give it a try. We'll give it a try.
0: Yeah. Alex, did you have one more?
2: Yeah. Oh, and then I did want to ask one question. A little bit kind of, kind of off the track of that but obviously you have a lot of experience with oregon politics and i actually didn't know that your dad was pretty high up kind of working too i'm curious of the you know kind of i guess opportunities and challenges that are created from a communications perspective kind of in like a one uh, and again oregon i know people a lot of people on the right say it's a one-party state i don't totally buy that i think republicans are able to be plenty competitive especially on the statewide level with the correct candidates but i think In terms of actual power right now, obviously, I mean, Dems basically control everything. But, you know, Dems have continued to control most of it, at least for, you know, most of the time that at least I've been alive. But curious of what working as a comms professional is like kind of in a a state, I guess, where one party matters a little bit more than the other, right? Like, it's not like maybe you're in somewhere super competitive like Florida or I know you said that you worked in Pennsylvania before, right? Where some of these elections are razor thin on the margins. Both parties are very organized. Like, in some ways, you do kind of have to you know, hone your message to like democratic influencers and things like that. What's it kind of like doing comms, I guess, from that perspective where, you know, like you really want to make sure you check the boxes and maybe like certain groups and kind of certain constituencies and things like that.
1: Yeah, I really valued, I think the value I often brought was my perspective of being born and raised in Lane County and having lots and lots of generations of my family also born and raised in Lane County you know, you are right that I think there is more of a conservative undertone than people really give the state credit for. And some of my best friends from college all live in Jackson County. You know, I've got three or four sets of good friends who live down there and are raising families. And, you know, I always really valued having, I do currently live in Portland, but like thinking through the lens of the rest of the state and traveling was always one of my favorite parts of of working for the AG, but also just really thinking through the lens of like, what are people talking about that, you know, I can kind of get in my little box of thinking what's important, you know, Ben mentioned what's going on with Secretary of State. Again, it's, are people paying attention to that? Are they not paying attention to that? You know, kind of really putting on my other hat of like thinking, well, what's happening in Lane County? And, you know, like, yes, my dad was a liberal Democrat from Lane County. Val Hoyle went on to, you know, take his house seat many years later and all that. But at the same time, like, it wasn't all that liberal, you know? I mean, I grew up with guns in my household and hunting and, you know, we had... A lot of you know, I went to a more rural high school, not that rural, but you know, it wasn't a big urban high school, you know. We had 4-H club and we had shop clubs and we had, you know, a lot of technical programs and things like that. And I, I just think of that lens a lot in, in politics in Oregon sometimes because we're so focused on the metro area or we're so focused on like you know, what we unquote, you know, side is doing a whole part of the state out there that really wants to be heard. And I think we saw that with the congressional races this year too. I mean, you know, we did change hands on some of the the congressional seats. So, you know, there's a lot to unpack there, even in a state like Oregon.
0: So Christina, I know we're almost at our time here, but I did want Mm -hmm. to sneak in one last question. You obviously have, we've talked a little bit about your professional career and you are entering a new chapter of that professional career. And I understand you were part of something pretty cool that happened last week. So can you give listeners a little bit of a a preview of what's to come in your professional life and uh, what some of the, the recent news was that you got to play a role in.
1: Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, after nine years working in the state AG's office, I've officially gone out on my own as a communications consultant. In, in mainly working in Oregon, although certainly would be open to to other projects that have kind of a national, you know, touch point. I most recently was really closely involved with Phil Knight' announcement that he was investing four hundred million dollars into the new eighteen oh three fund in. Portland or Portland's black community, the Albina project specifically that he's investing in. And, you know, to get a call like that, be asked to work on a project like that is a real pinch me moment. And it's like, Yeah. yeah, sign me up. I mean, we are so lucky to have somebody of his nature who would want to invest in in a project like that. And I just really enjoyed working on many of the different aspects of what that took. The announcement itself took place on Nike campus. And um, especially coming from state government, that was a really different experience, both, you know, good and bad. But it was like, hey, you know, you have the principal of Nike, and I can appreciate that, you know, working in politics, you have a principal and Phil Knight is definitely the principal at Nike and, you know, being able to work with, with, you know, anything you needed to make that announcement possible, they were able to just, you know, roll out the red carpet for. And so that was just a really different experience. But so just the significance of that investment in for the Black community of Portland, but really for Portland in general to... Have some juice and excitement, and this project, I believe, does have the potential to reshape Portland—not just how the city looks, but how the city operates and address some issues. Even in the last seven days, I have heard more people from, you know, um, the person who cuts my hair, who said that, you know, this. Investment was brought up at her daughter's PTA meeting in terms of like, hey, you know, could we get that money to, you know, reinvest the the playground at, at an elementary school in Northeast Portland to just somebody that I met at the park this weekend, you know, at a, on, a, on a social thing, like, wow, you know, I mean, I think it's really made people's wheel spin in a different way. And that's been really fun to be involved with that.
0: At a time when when Portland really needs good news. Uh, yeah, yeah. Good news for the city. <laughs> Well, Christina, me, thank you for, um, I have oh, no, yeah. no, no, go ahead.
1: Oh, no, no. All I was going to add is just being a little bit of bird in the, in the state government. It's been really fun and uh, really gratifying to talk with people and just hear kind of the things that are happening and being able to work with you guys on Oregon 360 is something that I am only able to do because I'm not under those same confines. And I have really enjoyed just dipping my toes into lots of new projects.
0: Awesome. Well, Christina, thank you for making time to come on the podcast and a huge thank you for all the work you do making the liftoff happen. If folks want to work with you or get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to, to get in touch?
1: Christina Edmondson at gmail.com. And I look forward to working with you two each week We put together the liftoff. And it's always fun to see that pop up in my inbox each Monday morning. It's a, it's a good way to start our weeks.
0: That's right. All right. Thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you back here next week.